Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster Vaccine Recombinant Adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com. Hello and welcome to the August 1st, 2023 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to telling you about what's new at annals.org since our last podcast. The weather in Philadelphia, where Annals is based, has been hot and humid, and excessive heat continues to present public health concerns for many in the U.S. and around the globe. So I hope everyone listening is somewhere cool and well hydrated as we get started. Speaking of public health concerns, the first article is an American College of Physicians position paper that provides recommendations for addressing the significant gaps in the United States pandemic and public health emergency response system. ACP calls for a federal pandemic preparedness plan that is adequately funded and prioritizes health equity. The organization also asks that federal and state agencies provide consistent and timely communications about risk and strategies to combat risk to build trust and combat misinformation. Other recommendations include a national public health data infrastructure capable of real-time bidirectional data sharing among public and private public health stakeholders, securing the healthcare supply chain, and improved support to maintain a healthcare workforce that is sufficient to provide surge capacity in emergencies. ACP affirms the importance of safety and well-being during emergencies. This must include safety for the public, patients, and physicians and other healthcare professionals, calling attention to the need for support for medical practices during emergencies, measures to reduce infections in workplaces, and universal sick leave policies. Finally, ACP calls for expedited and equitable vaccine development and distribution, vaccine use in accordance with scientific recommendations, and for physicians to promote vaccine uptake among their patients. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Shish Jha, who recently stepped down as director of the White House Office on Pandemic Response, supports ACP's recommendations and highlights the importance in preparing for future pandemics of reflecting not only on what went wrong, but also what went right during the COVID pandemic. Next is an analysis of persons eligible for statin use to prevent atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease that found disparities in the prevalence of statin use for primary or secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease among racial and ethnic minorities and women. Although statins are a class one recommendation for prevention of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and its complications, their use is suboptimal. The consequences of underutilization of statins may contribute to disparities in cardiovascular health outcomes. Understanding racial, ethnic, and gender-based differences in statin use could inform strategies to improve population-level atherosclerotic heart disease outcomes. Gout is an increasingly common metabolic inflammatory disease. Suboptimal care of the disease is associated with recurrent flares, increased emergency department visits, and hospitalizations. Gout flares have also been associated with an increased cardiovascular risk, and many cardiometabolic comorbidities accompany gout, including type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, chronic kidney disease, and cardiovascular disease. Interventions that can address both gout flares and cardiometabolic risk may be beneficial for patients. In the next article, researchers from Massachusetts General Hospital conducted a propensity score matched new user cohort study of 8,150 persons with both gout and type 2 diabetes. They found that the use of SGLT2 inhibitors was associated with a 34% lower rate of recurrent gout flare compared to DPP-4 medications 
and a 48% lower rate of flares requiring an emergency department visit or hospitalization. The authors also found that SGLT2 inhibitor use was associated with a relative risk reduction of 31% for myocardial infarction. According to the authors, these findings suggest that SGLT2 inhibitors could have a much-needed ability to simultaneously reduce the burden of recurrent gout flares and coronary sequelae in patients with both gout and type 2 diabetes. Thankfully, the MPOX outbreak of last year was quickly brought under control, but cases continued to occur. Authors from the Institute of Tropical Medicine in Belgium describe a case of tecoviramat-resistant MPOX identified at the autopsy of a severely immunocompromised patient with prolonged disease. Tecoviramat, an antiviral used to treat severe MPOX virus, has a low barrier to resistance, which makes this case particularly unusual. A 53-year-old patient presented with severe symptoms of MPOX that had been present for several weeks. The patient had several co-infections, including active HIV infection, chronic hepatitis B virus infection, latent syphilis, and anal chlamydia. Oral tecoviramat was started one day after the confirmation of MPOX, and the initial two-week course was successful. However, the anorectal viral load remained high up to day 48 and detectable up to the end of follow-up. Retrospective MPOX sequencing of the anorectal samples revealed a dominant variant population. This mutation was associated with a 350-fold increase in the half-maximal effective concentration of tecoviramat compared with typical virus. According to the authors, this case confirms the potential rapid selection of resistant mutant virus during tecoviramat monotherapy and could be the first to report this phenomenon. The rapid selection of resistance in this patient highlights the risk of tecoviramat monotherapy especially in the context of prolonged disease and immunosuppression. In such cases, the authors advocate for surveillance for resistant virus, emphasis on immune reconstitution, monitoring of viral clearance, and strict adherence to infection prevention measures. The next article also concerns an infectious disease that has been uncommon in the United States, malaria. However, on June 26, 2023, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued a Health Alert Network report regarding locally acquired mosquito-transmitted plasmodian vivax malaria. As of July 7, 2023, six cases in Florida, Sarasota County, and one in Cameron County, Texas, had been reported with the Texas case unrelated to the Florida cases. All affected persons received treatment and have fortunately recovered. Active surveillance for additional cases by the state health departments and mosquito control measures are ongoing. This is the first time since 2003 that locally acquired mosquito-transmitted malaria has been documented in the United States. The 20-year respite from local malaria transmission has resulted from both concerted public health efforts and an element of chance. Malaria transmission was relatively common in the United States before it was eliminated in the early 1950s. Nevertheless, vector species persist throughout the country today. Increasing temperatures, changes in precipitation patterns, and frequent extreme weather events may favor the geographic expansion of mosquito populations. Milder winters and warmer, longer summers may also lead to an increased risk of vector-borne transmission and outbreaks. The widespread presence of vectors leads to opportunities to initiate local transmission each time a person who acquires malaria from an endemic country enters the United States. 
The number of imported malaria cases reported annually in the U.S. has steadily increased since the 1970s, with over 1,800 such cases diagnosed in 2018. A new commentary describes the recent local cases and discusses the importance that physicians be alert for potential cases and knowledgeable about management of malaria. Effective and rapid treatment of infection limits the risk of onward transmission. Colorectal cancer is the fourth highest in incidence and second in mortality among cancers in the U.S. Screening for colorectal cancer is important, but variability among professional organizations' recommendations for screening can be confusing for both clinicians and patients. Next is a clinical guidance statement from the American College of Physicians that aims to alleviate some of this confusion. The guidance is based on a critical review of existing clinical guidelines and evidence reviews and modeling studies used to develop those guidelines. The goal of this ACP guidance statement is to help guide physicians on when to start and stop screening and on the selection of type and frequency of screening tests in asymptomatic, average-risk adults. ACP's guidance is for adults at average risk for colorectal cancer who do not have symptoms. It does not apply to adults with a family history of colorectal cancer, a long-standing history of inflammatory bowel disease, genetic syndromes such as familial cancerous polyps, a personal history of previous colorectal cancer or benign polyps, or other risk factors. Physicians should perform an individualized risk assessment for colorectal cancer in adults. In this updated guidance, ACP suggests that clinicians start screening for colorectal cancer in asymptomatic average-risk adults at age 50 years. Consider not screening asymptomatic average-risk adults between the ages of 45 and 49. Clinicians should discuss the uncertainty around benefits and harms of screening in this younger population. Stop screening for colorectal cancer in asymptomatic average-risk adults older than 75 years or in asymptomatic average-risk adults with a life expectancy of 10 years or less. Select a screening test for colorectal cancer in consultation with patients based on discussion of benefits, harms, costs, availability, frequency, and patient values and preferences. Select among screening tests for colorectal cancer a fecal immunochemical or high-sensitivity guaiac fecal occult blood test every two years, colonoscopy every 10 years, or flexible sigmoidoscopy every 10 years, plus a fecal immunochemical test every two years. Clinicians should not use stool DNA, computed tomography, colonography, capsule endoscopy, urine, or serum screening tests for colorectal cancer at this time. The net benefit of colorectal cancer screening is much less favorable in average-risk adults between the ages of 45 to 49 years than among those 50 to 75 years of age. Although there has been a small increase in colorectal cancer incidence among individuals aged 45 to 49 years, the incidence is much lower than in individuals aged 50 to 64 years and 65 to 74 years. Harms associated with colorectal cancer screening include serious bleeding, perforation, cardiovascular events, myocardial infarction, unnecessary follow-up visits, and costs for findings deemed clinically unimportant. Next is a study of more than 80,000 persons that found that age is a significant independent predictor of low-density lipoprotein cholesterol response to initiation of statin treatment. Patient-to-patient LDL cholesterol response varies widely with statin treatment. The reduction in LDL cholesterol may depend on the age of the patient treated. Persons older than 75 years have been underrepresented in randomized clinical trials, which limits evidence about the effects of statin treatment in this older age group. 
While current guidelines recommend statin use for secondary prevention in older adults, the recommendation is less strong for primary prevention. Researchers from Denmark conducted a nationwide cohort study of 82,958 persons initiating statin or torvastatin, including 10,388 persons aged 75 years and older. They found that initiators aged 75 years or older had higher mean LDL cholesterol percentage reductions than initiators younger than 50 years. For example, they note that older persons initiating 20 milligrams of simvastatin experienced a mean reduction of 39% compared with younger persons who only experienced a mean reduction of 33.8%. Similarly, older persons initiating 20 milligrams of atorvastatin experienced a mean reduction of 44.2% compared with younger persons who experienced a mean reduction of 40.2%. According to the study authors, these findings suggest that low to moderate dose statins may be more appealing as initial treatment in older adults who are at increased risk for adverse events. Inflammatory arthritis is an immune-related condition defined by the presence of clinical synovitis. Its most common form is rheumatoid arthritis. Several biomarkers associated with rheumatoid arthritis may be present for years before the development of clinical synovitis onset. Further characterization of this preclinical continuum should improve our knowledge of rheumatoid arthritis and its biomarkers, leading to better prevention strategies. Researchers from the University of Leeds report simple and comprehensive scores to predict inflammatory arthritis in at-risk persons. They developed the scores using an observational cohort study of 455 persons with new musculoskeletal symptoms, a positive test for anti-citrulin-related protein antibodies, and no clinical synovitis and followed for 48 weeks or more, or until an inflammatory arthritis occurred. The authors found that their simple score identified 249 low-risk participants with a false negative rate of 5%. They also found that their comprehensive score identified 119 high-risk patients with a false positive rate of 29%. The authors clarified that the simple score is reproducible, economical, and practical for use in primary care settings with good negative predictive value of the low-risk group, who may not require a referral for secondary care. They add that in comparison, the comprehensive scores identify a high-risk population for intervention studies. China has the largest population of persons with diabetes. 25% of all persons with diabetes reside there. Proper management of diet, lifestyle, weight, and clinical risk factors in diabetes is integral to reducing complications, improving quality of life, and reducing costs. However, a meta-analysis of people with type 2 diabetes from 20 countries revealed poor achievement of guideline-recommended hemoglobin A1c, blood pressure, and low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, also known as the ABC targets. Next is a cross-sectional survey of persons with self-reported diabetes in China that found that guideline-recommended diabetes care targets are not being met there. Researchers, including the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention, conducted a cross-sectional survey of a sample of 8,401 adults with self-reported diabetes and a subset of 3,531 with dietary data. The authors found that only one-third of survey participants achieved a body mass index of 24 kilograms per meter squared or less. Only 4.4% achieved all three ABC targets, hemoglobin A1c, blood pressure, and low-density lipoprotein cholesterol. 
Few people achieved all dietary targets. According to the authors, national healthcare policies for supporting accessible and affordable diabetes care need to be better designed and more effectively implemented in China. The provision of contraceptives is an essential component of preventive health care, particularly in the U.S., given political efforts to decrease access to safe elective termination of undesired pregnancy. Long-acting reversible contraceptive methods, sometimes called LARCs, including intrauterine devices and contraceptive implants, are effective, reversible, and safe forms of contraception with very few contraindications. IUDs are also effective forms of emergency contraception. Unfortunately, patients face obstacles to receipt of long-acting contraception, including a critical lack of access in internal medicine primary care clinics. Some patients, including those at risk for adverse reproductive health outcomes, prefer to receive their contraceptive care in primary care rather than having to seek care from a gynecologist. One-third of U.S. primary care physicians are trained in internal medicine. The authors of a new commentary argue that internal medicine physicians have a duty to support patients' contraceptive preferences and prevent unintended pregnancies. Unfortunately, few internal medicine practices offer on-site, long-acting, reversible contraception due to a critical lack of training and credentialing. The authors describe the necessary training and credentialing and challenge internal medicine training programs to make it a routine component of training. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope that you will go to annals.org to take a look at some of the new material I've highlighted here. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster vaccine recombinant adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com.